Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is Holly Fry and I have been here on History for just a couple of podcasts and now we are fully transitioning over to having another new co-host and that would be... I am Tracy V. Wilson. Uh, I, I'm joining the history team. Yeah. Yes. Uh, which is super exciting for me. As some of you probably know, Tracy and I hosted Pop Stuff together, which was really super fun. Yes. And so now I'm delighted that I get more Tracy time. That's very exciting for me also. Yes. It's, it's, it's like being paid to just do a thing that I like <laughs> to do, which is chat yep. uh, about interesting stuff. And today's topic is one that when I say it, people will recognize it. But I think unless they've done any real research on it, they may not realize the depth of wildness of this particular figure in American history. Um, And it's Al Swearingen, who uh, fans of Deadwood will immediately recognize the name because he's a character on that HBO show, which ran for a little while. Um, And I think there were awards won for that portrayal, but... If there were not, there was definitely a lot of critical acclaim I know across he was, the board. I know that Ian e. McShane was nominated, but mm-hmm. um, it's one of those rare cases where what you see on TV, while dramatized, doesn't even scratch the surface of drama of the actual historical figure's life. Like, I almost think you could never do justice to this man's history because it's so full and full of bizarreness. And, right. Like, no one would believe it if they saw it. Yeah, on, on, on the, the show. show, he's a pretty distinctive character. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't watched <laughs> enough of the show to speak super intelligently on it, but he's a pretty uh, distinctive character and not a good guy. No. Not a good guy. But the, his that that doesn't really even scratch the surface of how deep that went <sighs> yeah. in his actual life. Yeah, it's an amazing story, and so we thought we would share it today. Uh, because he, you know, started out as a child of pioneers and became a proprietor of a very popular and lucrative entertainment venue. But there are so many other facets of his life that shocked me when I was doing research. Like, I was surprised by sort of how embedded he was in so many pieces of American history. Mm-hmm. And so... Here we go. Let's do So he was actually born Ellis Albert Swearingen uh, on July 8th in 1845, and he has, had a twin brother, Lemuel. Ellis, which is what he went by as a child, was actually born second. Uh, he didn't adopt the name Al. He didn't start going by Al until much later, which could have been an effort to kind of dodge people that were looking for him. We'll right. into all of that. He had a lot of cause to do that. <laughs> he really did. Um his parents, Daniel and Keziah Swearingen, I have read two or three different accounts on how many children they actually had. Some say eight, some say ten. Mm-hmm. Uh, four of them did not survive their childhood that we know of that are documented. Three passed away as infants, and he had, I believe it was a brother that died of diphtheria when he was 14. Yes. That family was actually one of only 13 families that settled uh, Oskaloosa, Iowa, and... That is where um, Ellis slash Al, where Swearingen and his twin brother were born, which is in Mahaska County. And their father was a, a farmer. He served as sheriff briefly. Um, 
But what's interesting to note here in his early years is that they did briefly move to California during the gold rush there, but it didn't pan out, no pun intended. Right. As it often was the case with, right. with gold rush people, people would uh, head out after hearing news of a gold strike, hoping to become rich, and it would not work out. They would return home or go somewhere else with no money left, uh, and a lot of times the settlement that had formed would just be abandoned and become a ghost town, and yeah. this was a pretty typical thing that happened with a, a fair number of people in that era. Very common. And... um but I, I kind of highlight that because there are some historians that believe that that experience ended up kind of coloring Swearingen's approach to money making later on. Right. Um, he seemed to recognize that it was not likely that he was going to make a, a wealthy uh, right. living as as a gold miner, but that there were other things tied to that. There were sure things to bet yes. on. Yes. Uh, so yeah, once they. They did not strike it rich in California. The family moved back to Oskaloosa, and his father opened a meat market. Um, and his twin brother actually was trained to take over that business. Um, and this is an actual meat market. We're not using that as a euphemism for anything. No. It was a, a very typical... They had livestock. Yeah. They slaughtered animals and produced sausage and cuts of meat for people. Like right. It was a very successful, yeah. um, you know butcher shop grocery, but it was considered bigger than a butcher shop would be because they did do all of the the animal mm-hmm. um, care and slaughtering themselves. So that's so, why it's considered a meat market and not just yeah. a butcher shop. And it was a pretty standard pioneer world upbringing. Yeah. Not, not a lot of crazy excitement other than that one diversion to go to California to try to make a, a million dollars. Yeah. I think gold. through the modern lens, pioneer up- upbringing seems full of crazy adventure. But right. for the times, it was pretty much what a lot of kids were going right. through. Well, and I am perpetually surprised by accounts of the Old West that absolutely match up with our imaginary view of what the Old West was about. <laughs> and we'll get into more of that in this story. Like, there's a lot of the saloons and the gunslinging and the prostitution and all that that you sort of think of yeah. with the Wild West and, and then it turns a out a lot of that is very much it's seeded abs- in reality. Yes, it's based in the truth yeah. uh, of what really happened. So then an interesting thing happened, which is not often talked about, uh, to the best of my knowledge, in relation to Swearingen's history. No, a lot of his history kind of goes from childhood to the saloon part. It yeah. skips a, a slight sidetrack. Yeah, but uh, he was actually part of the Civil War. Yes, uh, not for a long time. Um, for background, he was part of the 100 Days Men Initiative, which was um, a project sort of designed to add some manpower to the union's efforts. They were in pretty good shape, but they knew they needed just more boots on the ground. Mm-hmm. And uh, they needed the more experienced soldiers to stop doing some of the grunt work. Yeah. Uh, so they came up with this plan where men could enlist for 100 days and they would relieve the more seasoned troops of those mundane duties like working in guardhouses and, you know, paperworky things so that those established troops that had experience that knew that what they were doing could then march on to actual battles where they were needed and could really have an impact right. instead of sort of wasting their time doing, doing busy work doing yeah doing stuff that had to get done but wasn't necessary like occupying forts is one of the things that was a a big part of it uh so in may of 1864 swearingen enlisted in the 47th iowa infantry uh which was right around the time of grant's wilderness campaign and then on june 4th of that same year uh 
they got orders to head to Camp Kinsman, which is near Davenport, Iowa. And they were only there really for a quick changeover to get their next set of orders. And then they were sent to Helena, Arkansas. Um, the Battle of Helena had happened about a year earlier on July 4th of 1893, um, which was going on at the same time as the Battle of Gettysburg. And they had successfully taken um, Helena. And so this infantry that Swearingen was part of was sent to Helena just to hold the fort there so that those troops could that had been occupying it that were needed elsewhere could go meet up with Sherman. Yes. And head east. They did not see a lot of action, <laughs> but they did see a lot of casualties because of illness. Yeah, malaria was really a problem. Right. Uh, they lost 7% of their numbers, largely attributed to malaria, but most accounts suggest that there were other illnesses that happened as well. Which is not surprising. No. At all. No. Uh, and... Many of the men were ill when they left, and some died after returning home, but they don't normally count those numbers into the casualties during the 100 years, or 100 years, 100 days of service. Yes. Um, so there were probably more than 7% that passed from just, you know, gross conditions and bugs. Right. Uh, there, we don't really think of malaria as a as an American disease anymore, no. thanks to mosquito control and, and that sort of thing. But it was a really a big problem in those years. Yes. Uh, especially, I mean, they were never fired upon while they were there. No, they, you know, never had to do any battle, but they were still losing soldiers due to parasites because of parasites. Yes. (laughs) Uh, but so he served his hundred days. Um, by all accounts, they were very successful. They did their job well, even though they were losing men to disease. And then on September 28th, uh, Swearingen was relieved. He was discharged, and so he returned to Oskaloosa. Yes. And for context, that's just before Sherman started his march to the sea. Yep. So that's where we were in the era of the Civil War. Yep. So it was a brief service, but again, I think it's interesting that people tend to gloss right past the fact that he served the Union in the Civil War. Right. Nobody ever really... It never comes up. Nope. (laughs) A lot of what I read before we started uh, recording this... Skips completely from yeah. childhood to saloon. Yeah, it literally is like he was a pioneer child and then he and then <laughs> opened up a bar and it's like, wait, surely something happened in there. Right. And we've discovered we know. that it did. So then comes his career. Uh, this is really where his career takes off. Right. Uh, once he had, had finished his brief stint in the service, uh, there were developments going on in the United States at the time that sort of led directly to how he came into what he would become known for. And believe it or not, that was actually the railroad. Right. Um, it was the railroad, and at the same time, it was still the war. Because a lot of the people yeah. who normally would have worked on the railroad, a lot of the people who would have done that labor, uh, were instead off fighting. Yeah. So a lot of the railroad work was done by kind of a rough-and-tumble group of workers. A lot of them <laughs> were uh, immigrants who weren't necessarily educated, didn't necessarily know the language at all. Yeah. Um, uh, so a, a a group of people who were thought of as coarse and dirty and uneducated, to some extent that may have been very true. Yeah. Uh, and in need of entertainment. Yeah. Uh, and so what would happen as uh, railroad tracks were being laid through the Des Moines Valley, uh, they would, you know, be working up to a certain point, which is called an end of stop point before they finish that section and then would further extend it. And those end of stop sort of pop-up townships um, 
were really where Swearingen first started working. And he initially began there as an apprentice barkeep late in 1864, so just after he was discharged. Um, and for five years, he rode the rail, following it to the end of the line and the end of the line and the end of the line, working the working the bar, trading in on the lucrative commerce that was available there. Because, again, these are people that need entertainment. There's not really an established township for them to, like, go to that entertainment. Mm-hmm. And so they were just perfectly situated to just need, you know, beverages. Right. <laughs> and gambling. Right. And, um, well, theoretically, probably some other underbelly kind of yes. activities. Well, and part of the, the reason that this could be so lucrative is that since a lot of the workers were immigrants and didn't necessarily know the language very well, didn't really know the value yeah. of the money that they were using, uh, it was pretty easy for people who weren't very scrupulous to set up their business in such a way that it was sort of more like extortion. Yeah, they really took business. advantage of people. Yes. And again, it's in a situation where there aren't many other amenities. It's not like they have another choice to take their money elsewhere. Right. <laughs> so it's like you can drink here or not drink at all. Right. All right. You have sort of the company store in, <laughs> uh, in this pop-up business that, yep. that maybe is charging an arm and a leg for things that are not that expensive. Yeah. For, so for those uh, five years in the, the latter part of the 1860s, he really learned his trade as a barkeep. Um, but then in 1870, two major developments were happening. One... The Iowa railroads were really booming, um, and the area near Swearingen's hometown of Oskaloosa had become one of the primary end stops. Um, there were a lot of railroads kind of leading towards that same area, so there were a lot of people coming in from different directions. And then two, a rich coal source was discovered in south-central Iowa, uh, and since they were building tracks for trains that needed coal. Right. The expansion of the railroad was really driving a big need for coal that had not existed before. Yeah. They had known there was coal there previously, but it wasn't really that valuable. But now it was becoming a huge commodity. And so now they not only had like the regular workers that worked on the the um, tracks, they also had miners coming in. And then... There was kind of a third group, which was cowboys that were using a nearby town called Eddyville as a shipping terminal. So they were like herding animals there and then putting them on trains or sometimes handing them off to other people. And so they had these three groups of primarily men that all needed entertainment and beverages and they were perfectly poised. Yes. Uh, so Swearingen decided that he was going to seize that moment because he recognized that this was... This had the potential to be something really big. Yeah, that this was really maybe where he could uh, cash in. And so, uh, according to local legend, the Swearingen twins opened the saloon, opened a saloon up in spring of 1871. Um there is some mythology that uh, hints that Jesse James actually drank there after one of his big heists, mm-hmm. but that has never been, I don't think, fully verified. Uh, there are a lot of sort of circumstantial, yes, that would work out kind of things, but right. I don't know that anyone has gotten ever hard evidence of, yes, he was here at this time. But I think it's interesting that uh, allegedly his twin was involved since he had been being groomed to take over the father's meat market. Uh, but he, Lemuel kind of falls out of the record after that. He's, you, we don't really hear much about him no, doing I, that. He ends up, I think, going back to 
to run the shop and right. and handle the family business. Right. And and Al definitely winds up with all of the notoriety. <laughs> yes. Uh notoriety is one word. Um <laughs> but, but um the problem is that in December of that same year, there was some really weird um legal stuff going on around prohibition. So we think of prohibition happening in the 1900s, but there was actually that is not the first time that prohibition was happening no. in, in the United States. And there were other s- individual states were passing laws. Yes. So Iowa had had a prohibition law. It had been um, determined that that was unconstitutional in a follow-up hearing. And then the Iowa Supreme Court then determined that the judgment that that law had been unconstitutional was thrown out. So now prohibition was back on. And Swearingen Saloon was illegal in, you know, the sound of a gavel. Right. And even before the saloon itself became illegal, one of his challenges had been getting enough liquor to serve. Yeah. Like he had to go to other states where, where it was legal to distill. Yeah. The, the liquor that he wanted. And, and so he was pretty deeply in debt when this happened. Yes. Uh, accounts vary a little bit. You'll sometimes see $10,000 listed as the amount and sometimes 12. Um, that's a lot of money back then. Right. I mean, that's substantial. It sounds not that huge for like a business owner starting out today, but at the time, of course, it was a significantly large amount. Uh, so he was in debt. He had no income because his business was shut down. He owed all this money and he apparently did not really intend to pay it back. No. So he took off. I sort of imagine this as kind of a, he hears about the ruling, throws some stuff in a bag and leaves under cover of night. I mean, there's not really documentation of his flight away yeah. from, from town, but uh, I, I kind of imagine it as, a, oh, I'm out of here. Yeah. See ya. Uh, so, yeah, he took off and he actually headed to Denver and thought he would get a new start and also dodge out on his debt. Um, that didn't work entirely. No. So he um, he got to Denver. He evaded his debtors for several months, but... Nothing lasts forever. So on May 2nd of 1872, he was in an Arapahoe County courtroom and defending against fraud charges because they alleged that he never had any intention right. to pay any of the money that he owed for all of that liquor that he had had brought into his saloon. Right. But he had borrowed money that he just never had any intent to pay back. No. <laughs> uh, which is not cool. <laughs> That that will uh, echo right many times throughout his life. Yeah, we could we could and we will not do this, but we could pretty much follow all of the sentences from here until the end with him. That was not cool. Yeah, well, and we could also probably do an entire podcast on just the people that he promised to pay that he never even meant to ever give a cent to. Right. Um, but so he had hoped to get out of this um, this case on a technicality. His lawyer uh, cited the main law. M-A-I-N-E, Law of 1855. Um, Section 15-91 of Iowa's Prohibition Law states that, and I quote, all payments or compensation for intoxicating liquors hereafter sold in violation of this act will be null and void, nor shall any action be maintained for the recovery or possession of any intoxicating liquor of the value thereof. So he was hoping that his lawyer could say, well, it was illegal for them to have to sell the liquor anyway, so he should never have to pay them back. 
Um, that is a pretty interesting provision to have in a law. <laughs> it, it, it basically says uh, if if you bought a whole bunch of liquor, that didn't really happen. Right. And since almost all of the debts were just for alcohol, for stocking the saloon, they really thought that they had it, that they were going to get out of the, the case on this. But the plaintiff's lawyers countered that the main law wasn't actually in effect when these goods changed hands. Right. So they were saying this does not retroactively right. you can't, make the money not be actually spent on liquor. Right. And that law had actually been, you know, on the books in an earlier stage of prohibition. But when that was deemed unconstitutional was the period when they purchased the liquor. So they couldn't like it was the argument was that you could not maintain that law throughout the time when it was then legal to sell alcohol. Like it wasn't the switch was flipping on and off. You couldn't just apply the 1855 law to stuff that happened in um, 1871. Right. And then there was a kind of a window <laughs> where th- that law would not have applied. Right. Swearingen's defense was a little bit shaken by this. I don't know why they wouldn't have seen that coming. Uh, but they kept requesting continuances and like saying, oh, could we, we we're still working on the case because that really threw us for a loop. And eventually it just dragged on for so long that both sides we're willing to just say, let's just throw this all in front of a judge and let them decide. Um, we don't want to do a jury trial. We don't want to keep dragging this out. Let's just settle this. It's almost like settling out of court, but you're in court. Right. And it's just kind of like going to the judge's chambers and letting them decide. Um, but the judge, of course, found Swearingen guilty. Yes. Uh, and an appeal was filed by Swearingen's lawyer. Which I think they had set no up intent. a date. Right. But Swearingen didn't show up for that, so... Much as he had no intention of paying any of the money back, I think he had no intention of showing up for that court date. Because that would have involved paying the money back, too. Right. So he took off. (laughs) That's another one every chapter of his life really ends with. So he took off. Right. He just left. He next headed towards Helena, which is Helena, Montana, not the Helena we mentioned earlier during his Civil War time. Um, there had been a gold find in Helena, and so a mining camp had started up there. And Helena was kind of remote. You had to cross mountains to get there. And so he thought, like, ha-ha, this is like an eight-day journey minimum. I can go hide out there, and they won't find me right. for at least a while. Surely if I go there, yeah. no one will know who I can I become am. anonymous and start again. Um, you, you might have, he might have done well to maybe change his name at some I know. point. Not and so that, much the first name, also the last, right. <laughs> the last name. That never seems to have been no. a thing he thought to do. And so, you know, because the mining camp was new, he thought he could blend in, but I'm sure also that the mining camp and the miners that needed entertainment there were also a little bit of a, a draw for him. Right. Um, and he wasn't in Helena very long, but while he was there, he did manage to acquire a wife. Um, Her name was Annette Walton, and she went by Nettie. And at the time, he was 29, and she was 22, and she had always lived at home. So Mm -hmm. he kind of plucked her from her family and married her. That will also be a theme later. Yeah. We don't hear a whole lot about Nettie until kind of later in the game. But um, So in spring of 1875, uh, Swearingen and his wife were then on a steamer headed to Bismarck in Dakota Territory. Uh, with the intention that they would then make a connecting stagecoach to the Black Hills because it was rumored that gold was plentiful. Um, and that meant there would be lots and lots of yeah, hopeful miners. He wasn't after the gold. Who would need alcohol. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
And he was also in search of land. He had really learned from his father's Oskaloosa success because his dad had actually purchased land before they went to California for the the attempt at the gold rush there. And so when that didn't work out and they went back to Oskaloosa, they had land. He could set up his shop. Right. Um, Without having made those purchases, I think it would have been a lot harder for the family returning from the gold rush. Yeah, to just pick up and and start their life. To start something and then be pretty successful with it. And so there is this combination. It comes up periodically that he, he learned a lot from that in terms of wanting to purchase property. And that he had also learned from his time as an apprentice barkeep that don't mind the mine, mind the miner. Right. Like that's a sure thing. You don't know if they'll find gold, but you know they'll want to drink at the end of the day. Uh, so he had really sort of developed this kind of like what he thought was best practices for business in terms of, you know, being able to make money and, uh, you know, keep a steady inflow of income. And so he kind of bases all of his decisions from here on out on that. So as we said, when we got to Dakota, he was looking for land, um, and initially he set up a, a home in Custer and he was actually credited in the Bismarck Daily Tribune as one of the people who established Custer City, which is another thing we don't really hear about him. No. It seems almost like upstanding citizeny. Right. But that kind of gets obscured because one, it was a very brief time in his life and two, um, it, there are other things that far overshadow it as yes. we go forward. And there, uh, I read one historian's account where he suggested that a lot of people have kind of um, guessed that what might have been the case here where he has this weird sort of civic community mindedness is that he was freshly married and he may have thought like he was going to become a responsible, you know, businessman and a community leader to some degree. And that's why he was focusing a little bit more on land at that point. But we don't really know. That's just, um, you know, guesses. Right. Um, and in any case, it didn't really last. No. Um, partially because Custer kind, Custer city kind of emptied out. Um, there was a big gold find in Deadwood Gulch and people started moving out of Custer city and to Deadwood. And then, once again, (laughs) he got in trouble for selling liquor. Yeah. In, um, and I'm using the air quotes because this is actually quoted, it's in Indian country. Right. Um, so according to the Sioux Treaty of 1868, the Black Hills, which are considered sacred to the Sioux, were still owned by the Sioux, but, um, U.S. citizens could explore that area right. and could pan there. But they could not sell alcohol there. But they couldn't have businesses there. Right. And he was selling alcohol um, in in Indian country. So uh, he became a fugitive. Again. Again. I mean, it never really ends. He's sort of always a fugitive. This right. is just stage two. Yes. Um, it is <laughs> another layer of things that he is on the run from. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because later on he kind of, he still is avoiding a lot of things, but he doesn't run from it. He just dodges it in kind of crafty ways. Right. And this is the point at which he really has a shift in his life story because he really does kind of set down roots. Yes. Uh, and that is actually where we are going to 
break for this particular story because there is so much that happens in the next part of his life that it's a whole episode on its own. Right. This is a two-parter. Well, there's so much that's happened up to this point that gets glossed over in, yeah. in most accounts of his life. They are, it's just skipped. They really jump right to Deadwood. Yeah, it kind of goes birth to Deadwood. Is, is why we wanted to do this first part. Like, all of the other sort of wild adventures he had... I mean, they weren't as wild as what's to come. Right. But but they are interesting pieces of the puzzle that I think people don't always take into account. I mean, like I said, his, his service and his, you know, his marriage and possible weird shift to try to be, you know, an above board guy for a little while. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, sort of how those things really shaped his business mindset you know, and his experiences with his parents and, and his father's success. It's kind of interesting. I think it's good to lay that groundwork so that when we get to this this next part where things really go a little crazy. Yeah, it's not craziness that's happening in a vacuum. We have no. a better sense of what brought him to this point. Yeah. So uh, that is phase one of Al Swearington's life. Buckle up. You might want to put on safety gear for the, the it, next episode yeah. because it really does get a little bit wild. It it really, in all things where you consider the Wild West and the settling of America, whatever weird, crazy stories you've heard, it's kind of like that and maybe bigger. And more. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's phase one of Al. And we will we have so much more to tell you. Yes. So I hope you are excited for this next part because that's where it really gets juicy. I believe you also have some fantastic listener mail. I do. So um, we did a podcast on Walter Potter and taxidermy recently, and we got a lot of really fun responses to it. Uh, I think it's one of those things that just kind of captures people's imagination and both their um, sort of fascination a, with right. death. There's and- a horrific fascination level to it. Yeah, it's a little bit of a you-can't-look-away thing. Um, But we had, like I said, some very, very fun emails, and I have a few very brief ones. The first one is from our listener, Helene, and she says, Hi, I just finished listening to your podcast on Walter Potter, and you mentioned that you were not aware of many movies on taxidermy. I had one that came to mind instantly, even though taxidermy is not quite the main theme. Psycho. I had completely forgotten about this. Uh, It does not paint taxidermy in the most flattering way, obviously. No matter how creepy one thinks stuffed pets are, stuffed mom takes the cake. Uh, I greatly enjoy your podcast. I'm looking forward to more. Uh, I agree. I Right. Mounting uh, a human being as a work of taxidermy art is creepy. I concur. (laughs) Uh, And then another one is from our listener Margie, and this is... In reference to something Sarah mentioned um, about a two-headed snake that she has seen at the she used to see at the Georgia State Capitol mm-hmm. uh, that fascinated her, and she says, "Dear Sarah, I thought I would tell you something more about your favorite two-headed snake at the Georgia State Capitol. My brother and his friend caught that snake when they were eight years old in a creek in our neighborhood in West End. They caught it in a jar and brought it home, thinking they had quite the prize. Our mother had a fit, but our father thought it was cool." Because it was a water moccasin, they were not allowed to keep it. That is the sentence I read about eight <laughs> times in that email. Because it was a water moccasin, 
they were not allowed to keep it. Well, they might have, if it weren't potentially dangerous. Well, and I'm kind of amazed that some eight-year-olds managed to catch a water moccasin in a jar because they tend to be very aggressive. Yeah, they do. But maybe the maybe two it's heads two slowed heads. it down. Right. If you, uh, Margie, if you have additional information about the behavior of the snake, we're very curious. Yes. Two-headed animals often do not live in the wild very uh, long. So yeah. maybe that helped and them uh, not be bitten by a water moccasin. I, I love this next part as well. I remember that one head was dominant and would bite the other. This might have led to its death, though I do not know. I really want more information. Margie, we need follow-up. We need, like, a whole background on that snake. Right. Maybe its aggression was solely taken out on the other head and not on the eight-year-olds <laughs> it was, to catch it in a it jar. It was busy fighting itself in, like, a sort of beautiful oh. Freudian snake life. Um, I'm going to have to have some kind of existential snake dreams tonight. <laughs> And then our last email is from our listener, Gavin. Uh, and he says, hi, guys. I was just listening to the podcast about Walter Potter and his taxidermy, and it got me thinking about Bass Pro Shops. We have those here as well. He's in uh, Canada. He says, Bass Pro Shops are these very large outdoor-type shops, which on the inside of many locations feature a large number of taxidermy specimens indigenous to the area the store is located in. The closest store to where I live is about three hours away and is filled with deer, bighorn sheep, and more deer. When you first walk in, on the ceiling is a sort of fresco that features a big Alberta sky with at least 20 specimens sort of jumping from the ceiling. Another popular feature is a polar bear standing on its hind legs that is a very popular place for children to take pictures standing in its arms. Wow. Um, we have those here. Yeah. I've only been in two, I think. We have a lot of them in Georgia. Right. Um, especially once you leave the metro Atlanta area and you're just outside the city, where it's close enough for big stores to still be, but far enough out that people want more um, sportsman-type things. Yeah, things become pretty rural outside of and metro I know Atlanta pretty quickly. one of ours has a bear, mm-hmm. not a polar bear, um, like a, uh, it's a brown bear, but I don't know what species it is, I'm embarrassed to admit. Right. Uh, I didn't pay close attention. Uh, and I know we have... Some that have a lot of birds. There's one that has like geese and stuff. Yeah, it's weird. I never thought about it because I haven't no, been to one in a long time. But the second I read his email, I was like, oh man, yeah, we have Bass Pro. And they do have the birds mounted in the yeah. windows. I listened to that episode. I listened to a number of episodes uh, <laughs> leading up to recording this episode today because I know I have some giant shoes to fill and I want to make sure I fill them well. Um, and I immediately in that episode was reminded of a family heirloom in my family, which is not taxidermied. It is, in fact, uh, a dead puppy with two bodies and one head preserved in a jar of formaldehyde. Wow. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little terrifying. But, yeah, uh, upon hearing about all these animals and their strange bodies yeah. and, and all of that, that is immediately it, what you thought It of. immediately came to mind. If Walter Potter were alive today, he would put a little suit coat on the puppies. Two suit coats, I guess. <laughs> and come up with some adorable tableau. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I loved hearing about everybody's taxidermy thoughts. There were many, which was really cool. Uh, it's one of those things where I find it really interesting and fascinating, but at the same time, I'm like, are people just going to be horrified by this topic? But no, you guys appreciate the weird and wonderful history of it. If you would like to write to us about taxidermy or anything else we talk about, you can do so at historypodcast at discovery.com. And you can also touch base with us on Twitter, at Missed in History, and we're also on Facebook. If you would like to learn a little bit more about something we've talked about today, 
you can go to our website and type in Civil War in the search bar and you will get a whole package of content on the Civil War from so many different angles that you'll get a pretty thorough picture of the situation as it was unfolding. If you would like to research almost anything else your mind can conjure, you can do that at our, at our website as well. And that website is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.